Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Azure. This episode is sponsored by Solvetto. Stay ahead of the game and advance your career with continuous learning opportunities for Azure cloud professionals. Solvetto EduHouse, learning as a lifestyle. Start your journey now by going to eduhouse.fi slash cloudpro. I'm Tobias. I'm back again with UC. What's up? Hey, Tobias. I realized that now that we live in the new house for about six months now, we, we have a small yard. And the kids have been asking for a trampoline. And, and we used to have one at the summer cabin, but obviously we don't go there that often. So we went to the store this past weekend to get one. And I perhaps did not do my preparation properly for this because I didn't realize how many different types of trampolines exist. There's the cheapo ones, there's the professional ones, there's the super premium expensive ones. So we opted for something fairly affordable because the season here in, in, in Helsinki is relatively short to keep the trampoline assembled on the yard before winter comes. So I got the box from the store, we packed it in the car, everything was fine, kids were happy. And then we got home, we started assembling it. And I didn't take the one that I was supposed to take, the circle shaped, but uh, apparently the box was in the wrong pile in the store and I got the one that's oval shaped <laughs> and it's massive. It's I, I think it's almost five meters wow. uh, wide and it just barely fits on the spot we had planned for the trampoline on the yard. But the kids are happy now. So all is well, but next time I will be extra careful on checking what I'm buying. Yeah. So I, I have a, a couple of friends who, who have one of those as well and it's it's pretty popular around here as well and just be make sure that you anchor it down because when the strong winds come it can be like a sail on a sailboat it, it just the wind comes under it and it will just take it away so uh two of our friends their trampoline went two and a half kilometers with the wind <laughs> because they live by some fields so it just went out over their fences and then it started rolling with the wind like a sail and it just smashed through a couple of fields one of those solar panel parks where you have you know collecting sun rays uh, just precisely missed all of the so solar panels but you could see where it bounced so it was pretty high force make sure you just anchor that thing down before the strong winds come back <laughs> that's good advice i will on my side you mentioned that you stopped eating gluten, I think, in the last few episodes. And to that point, uh, I actually stopped eating bread for breakfast uh, some time ago, I think half a year ago. So now that I'm back in the saddle, literally on the road bike and getting a lot of workout done every day uh, again, I tend to do perhaps between 30 to 50 kilometers each workout session a few times per week now. It's pretty nice. And I noticed a huge difference in the effect of that workout while having not having the bread in the morning because I used to eat maybe two or three sandwiches in the morning because it's good, right? I love sandwiches. Uh, but skipping that entirely, this is not like a super strict diet, but reducing the morning sandwich greatly improved the metabolism I have and the calories I burn and at least the, the perceived results of the workout. I still eat pizza, obviously, and bread. So I, I think that's the balance you need to find. Like I, I don't believe in any one diet that restricts you too much it should be a balance if you work out enough and you eat healthy most of the time you should be able to indulge in whatever you want 
like a bowl of chips, a couple of pizzas, a few burgers and fries. I don't care. I eat everything. But I justify that by working out and and just reducing the bread, like the sandwiches I had every single morning, that helped a lot. So that's that's what's up for me. That's the biggest change I've seen to my kind of lifestyle. So pretty minor change. That's a good insight for sure. And and bread, I love bread. I don't really eat it that often anymore, but it's easy to consume a couple of slices because, hey, it's bread. <laughs> Alrighty, before we get to the actual content, we have something new here and um, we have a few community highlights, content, articles, blogs that we've been reading uh, since the last time we recorded. And so we have a couple of to list and, and we'll add the links to the show notes. Toby, I think you have a couple. Which ones would you like to highlight as content from the community? Yeah. So since this is the first time we're doing this, there's, you know, we could choose from quite a long list of community uh, content and and there's a lot of stuff out there. Uh, I wanted to pick something that happened recently that I I took a look at. Sam Kogan published something called uh, Resource Group Location Matters in his blog. And and that's just uh, Resource Group Location Considerations in Failover Scenarios. And that's pretty interesting. Uh, another one is by Anthony Chu in the Microsoft Tech Community. And he talks about uh, an Azure Container Apps newsletter that is now launched. So if that's the space you work in, uh, that may, proven, uh, may prove to be a great resource as well. So I'll make sure that we put all those links in the show notes as well. So what, what highlights do you have on your side? So I have two more. The first one is from Daniel Calabimonte. How to work with chat GPT in Visual Studio Code. So this is an extension for VS Code to enable chat GPT assistance for writing and coding. And this is talking directly with the OpenAI chat GPT. So it's not Azure OpenAI services. I haven't tried this yet, but it, it looks interesting. The second and last one on the community highlights is a super interesting reflection from Jukka Niiramen on the world beyond apps, his thoughts on AI's impact. So it's a lengthy reflection on OpenAI, LLMs, Azure Cognitive Services, how will they impact and perhaps affect your work. I'm sort of halfway through on that article. I am tempted to go to ChatGPT to ask me to condense that, but it's <laughs> it's interesting, so I will definitely be reading all of that. So community highlights for links, we'll add those in the show notes. So today's episode is reviewing design decisions for Microsoft Sentinel workspace architecture. That is a mouthful. So Toby, when we were thinking about this, what did you have in mind when 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 we were sort of thinking, well, is is there something we can talk about this topic? Yeah, that that's a great question. And I worked a lot with Microsoft Sentinel and Log Analytics workspaces and designing them, but also figuring out that I made the wrong design decision and then understanding the cost of kind of figuring out the road ahead for making the wrong decision. Uh, Microsoft just launched uh, this design your Microsoft Sentinel workspace architecture guiding, guidance and decision tree. So what I wanted to do is just take a you know high level kind of tour around this decision tree. Because if you are working with log analytics workspaces for your Sentinel uh, setup, 
and you're in charge of the architecture or the design of how you work with that type of information, then this is a, an article that will be very beneficial for you. So we'll put the link to this decision tree, of course, in the show notes as well. So I wanted to just take out like a high level uh, approach to it. So we're not going to dive into every single step you can make in the decision tree. Uh, you will, of course, have to navigate to the link in the show notes or just Google for uh, designing your Microsoft Sentinel workspace architecture. And you'll find it uh, as one of the first, if not the first result. Um, I know we talked about Sentinel in episode 21 with uh, Martin Poet, and this is kind of a late follow-up to to that. I know we we briefed on some considerations for access restrictions and stuff like that, uh, and now th with this decision tree, you can really make informed decisions on how you should really set up your uh, Sentinel workspaces. And I I think like coming back to the question. Um, why would you need this or what is the thought here? If you're a company with five users and you have one app or you're setting up a new resource group with something that you're trying out or, or small solution, this may be irrelevant for you because making a change later will not impact you that greatly. If you're an enterprise or if you operate like distributed cloud solutions and you operate things in the cloud at scale, it can cost you a lot more to kind of change afterwards after you've deployed it. Because there are going to be decisions like, do you need a single workspace? Do you need multiple workspaces and why? Uh, data separation, uh, regulatory compliance things. Like there's a bunch of things to to consider. So that's kind of the high level that we want to come back to and, and take a look at why would you why would you need this? And what are the high level considerations? So hopefully the takeaway after this episode, if you work with any of these things, is to have this top of mind whenever you create a new Sentinel uh, workspace. You're going to think, how will this be used? Will I need to think about billing? Will I need to think about access restrictions? Will I need to think about the daily ingestion rate and stuff like that? So that's kind of the, what we're going to cover in this topic. I really like this approach because Sentinel has been available for quite some time now. And far too often, the, the mindset of deploying Sentinel is that, well, let me spin up a log analytics workspace. Let's enable Sentinel on that workspace. And Let's do a couple of data connectors and we're done. And obviously that's not nearly enough. So before we dive deeper into the decision tree, just in case somebody's listening on this and, and has never heard of Microsoft Sentinel. Well, obviously you can go back to episode 21. That was about three years ago that we did it, but it's still very relevant. Everything stands what we talked about back then, but in short, Microsoft Sentinel gives you a single solution for attack detection, threat visibility, proactive hunting of threats, and threat response. So it's a tool on top of Microsoft Azure that ingests logs and data and events and allows you to automate, orchestrate, and respond to any of those threats. That's essentially what it is. But there's a lot of functionality there as well. So a, a couple of prerequisites. And as Toby, as you said, if you have five people in your environment, obviously Sentinel can still be used, but perhaps you do not need to pay as much attention to prerequisites because it's a next, next done type of a deployment. But you mentioned you've been working quite a bit with Sentinel back in the day. 
what would you say are the key things to think about when starting Sentinel or when planning for a new Sentinel deployment? Because the only one that pops to my mind is the amount of data we're planning on ingesting per day, because that directly translates to cost. But anything else? Yeah. And and that's a good that's actually listed on the table, I think, on the prerequisites as well. That is one of the key factors. And and when we talk about prerequisites in this case, it is things we need to have an understanding of in our organization before we start diving into the decision tree. So to make the best decisions, we need to have this information. So one is the daily ingestion rate, as you mentioned. And and that's a key factor, right? Because cost is always a priority one for most customers. Um so uh, definitely good to have that information. You can you know, use either the cost calculator if you haven't got something set up. If you're already ingesting data, you can just take a look historically how much you ingest because this information will also factor into the decisions you make. Other than that, there is regulatory requirements related to Azure data residency. This is things like uh, not all regions support Microsoft Sentinel, for example. So you need to understand, is my region supported? Uh, in GA for log analytics and Sentinel, and newly supported log analytics region, uh, regions that can take some time to onboard to the Microsoft Sentinel service. So that's why like, hopefully at some point, all of the regions will have it, but it could be that if you have a new region that it hasn't been onboarded yet. So step number one, figure out, is my region actually supported, right? So you don't start making decisions about shipping your log data to a different region uh, and you have all your resources in one region and then you ship your logs to another because that talking about cost, that's going to incur quite a bit of cost because now you're sending data between regions, which means you're going to pay the egress and ingress network traffic as well. Uh, you need to think about data sources. And one thing before diving into the decision tree is know what data sources you need to connect, including all those built-in connectors uh, to both Microsoft and non-Microsoft solutions because you can connect to the Azure Firewall and you can connect it to Defender for Cloud and to Microsoft 365 and SharePoint and all these things. So understand what kind of data you want to have and collect because that will also factor into the amount of data, of course, ingested, but also to what type of data it will hold because that can also play a role You know, if you store PII, uh, personally identifiable information. It can also be if you have custom connectors, that is shipping logs from a custom solution in, will that have some PII that you need to kind of separate. Do you need to make a decision around that? So having that information will help you a lot. Um, then as always, like user roles and data access levels and permissions. I think we talked to some extent with Martin in episode 21 about that. Uh, but just to kind of reiterate, uh, when you start thinking about design decisions or architectural decisions for setting up Sentinel, it's very good to have this information. How do you want this to be accessed? Who should be able to access this? Uh, have you already defined your Azure RBAC or role-based access control using the built-in roles or do you have custom roles? Because all Microsoft Sentinel built-in roles, uh, they grant read access to the data in the Sentinel workspace. So you need to figure out like, is there a need to control the data access per data source or role level as that will also of course impact the design decisions that you make. So those are the prerequisites like a short recap of those is regulatory requirements related to Azure data residency and if your region is supported, what data sources you're going to ingest, and the user roles and data access levels and permissions, and the daily ingestion rate, and that is gigabytes per day. That's quite a bit 
quite a bit, but once we've cleared those three requisites, then we actually get to the decision tree. So there's a graphic, and again, we'll put the link in the show notes, because I think visually when you see the graphic, it makes more sense. The graphic looks simple, but there's quite a bit of things happening there. So first, there is the actual decision tree. It's It has eight steps. So you start from step one, and depending on what you choose to answer in step one, and let's talk about that in a second, it might direct you to go to step five, depending on your decision. And some of these steps have additional uh, pointers to additional notes. So quickly checking, we have 10 additional notes. So eight steps, each step has uh, a decision you have to make. Depending on what decision you make, you have additional notes attached that give you further context. If you choose to do X, then you also have to do uh, Y, Z, and, and W, for example. So it's not just a simple two-minute rundown, yeah, let's do this, but you actually have to think and design your high-level architecture on this. So it's not a technical exercise. It's more business-oriented and requirement-oriented based on that. So let's run through all of the steps, but there's quite a bit of stuff on each step, so we might not touch on every possible angle in here. But we try to open up the decision tree and also to highlight what's relevant, what's perhaps more exotic or maybe less relevant. So, Toby, what's step number one? Yeah, so just high level. Uh, as you said, let's not dive into each detail about each step because that will take quite some time. Uh, step number one is, is it a new or an existing workspace? Pretty simple question, right? And the question is just, do you have an existing workspace that you use for Microsoft Sentinel? If not, you, you'll be creating a new workspace. If you have an existing workspace, then you get a, a few additional considerations. Like if you'll be ingesting more than 100 gigs per day, the recommendation is you create a separate workspace for the sake of cost efficiency. If you'll be ingesting less than 100 gigs per day, you just kind of continue to the next step for, for continuous evaluation. So, so that is the first, like, do you have an existing workspace or not? And then depending on the data ingestion, you can make choices within that. Yeah, that's that's clear enough. So if you choose no, then you move on to step number two on if you have any regulatory requirements for keeping data in different geographies. For example, let's say majority of your users are based in the EU, but perhaps you have a department in the US. So you choose to have two different places where you're going to keep your data. Uh, as viewed from Sentinel. So if the answer is yes, like in this example, then you're going to need a separate or multiple Sentinel workspaces, one for each region typically, and it adds up to the complexity. And I feel the decision tree aims to open up your eyes on this, that, oh, if you choose this, then you have to do this, 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 and this. It's not a simple yes, no, or a binary choice. It's something that will perhaps later affect your overall cost or 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 work or or project depending on what you choose. Step number two, regulatory requirements. If there's no, you move on to step number three. Yeah, so it's exactly what you say. 
these steps are not like written in stone saying this is exactly how you do it every time, but it's uh, it's an exercise that feeds your understanding of how Sentinel works and should work the best way, but also how you work in your organization. So all of these questions will make sure that you ask the right questions internally to figure this out. So even if you answer yes to step number two and say, yes, I do have regulatory requirements and you need to create a new workspace for that reason, when you have that workspace, you can actually go back to step number one and say, do you have an existing workspace? Yes, I do. And then you know the constraints for that. And when you come to number two, you can skip that and go to number three, and then you can kind of continue the evaluation with that new workspace as well. So it's a it's a an exercise in understanding your own business in a way. So step number three uh, is: Do you have multiple Azure tenants? So if yes, like are you collecting logs that are specific to tenant boundaries, such as Office 365 and Microsoft Defender? If yes, then you use a separate Microsoft Sentinel workspace for each AAD tenant. If no, then you just proceed to step number four. And then there are some added details, of course, for these steps and the decisions. So just high level now, um, don't want to dive into all of these details. But the consideration for step number three is do you have multiple Azure tenants? If you do, that will also impact how you collect data and how you design your Sentinel uh, workspace design. Okay, and then moving on to step number four, how do you want to manage billing or if you have some sort of a charge back model. So this typically applies, especially to larger enterprises. You might have multiple departments and IT might not be the department that eats up the cost on everything Sentinel. You might want to split the billing based on what sort of data you're ingesting and what sort of licensing and additional configuration is required. So there's a footnote here that if you do need to split billing or have some sort of a chargeback eventually back to different units or departments, what you can do, you can do a semi-manual or semi-automatic usage reporting, meaning manually cross-charging those later on, perhaps looking at that per quarter and then say, yeah, this is the cost, so we expect you to, you to uh, pay 25% of this cost. But if this sort of a model is not acceptable, then the alternative is to have a separate Sentinel workspace for each cost owner. And obviously that again adds up to the complexity. Yep, nice. Step number five is asking you, are you collecting any non-SOC or SOC data? Um, and this is a very relevant question, right? Because this is Microsoft Sentinel. Uh, it's a security service that helps you with your security and SOC data is security operating center data. So if your workspace is only collecting SOC data, you make certain decisions. If it's collecting other data as well, so that could mean that you have App Insights con connected to the same workspace for your custom applications. It could mean that you have other type of audit logs or activity logs or data logs that may not be security related that flows into the same workspace that you're collecting, then, then this is a highly relevant question for you. Because really, we want to separate security logs from anything else. So we have a secure and audit trace specifically for uh, security incidents and security events. And any non-SOC data could be separated, but this is a design choice you have to make in your organization. So the question is collecting any non-SOC data if you're not collecting any non-SOC data, 
like any security or operational data, then you can just skip to di directly to step number six. But if you are collecting non-SOC data in, in the workspace or go data that is not directly relevant to the security operations, then you should consider whether there are any overlaps with that data and the data that comes in to Microsoft Sentinel, you know, where the same data source is then required for both these types of data. So if you do have overlaps between these, then you should treat the overlapping data as SOC data only, and not the other way around. So the most sensitive type should be what you consider, not the least sensitive type. Uh, and then consider what are the ingestion for both SOC and non-SOC data individually is less than 100 gigabytes per day, but more than 100 gigabytes per day when combined, because coming back to the cost evaluation, this will have a huge impact on your cost. And the reason for that is there are some benefits for using some of the tiers with Sentinel and, and Log Analytics Workspace that says if you ingest this or that much data in a workspace, then you, you get this bill. Um, but you can make uh, decisions on that. And I think I don't recall the exact metrics or the exact numbers now for, for this, but there is pretty good guidance that says by combining these types of logs, you're going to get a, a more cost-efficient setup. So I, I think that is linked in this design step as well. Again, I don't want to dive into the details because we can easily spend another 25 minutes talking about only this point. So think about if you have non-SOC data and SOC data, think about what happens if you combine them uh, into a single workspace or if you separate them. How many gigabytes will each data type be ingested per in gigabytes per day? And then take a look at the billing for Sentinel and data ingestion. Where do you get the, how do you say, um, you don't call them reserved instances in log analytics, I think you call them something else, but the pricing tiers uh, that you can select differs per amount of gigabytes ingested. So that's kind of where the, the question comes into play and, and becomes relevant. There's a lot of notes on this step in the design decision tree uh, document that we're linking in. So I'm going to have you go there and read everything about it because I think that's easier. But yeah, everything comes back to cost. So if you, if you combine the data, consider the cost impact for that. So understanding that cost impact, that's what the notes in the decision tree is for. Really, really good step and really important here as well. I, I think it's called the commitment here. I'm, I'm yeah, vaguely Yeah, that's probably it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, me, meaning that if you already know that you're going to be ingesting tens or hundreds of gigabytes of data to your Sentinel instance, then you can commit to a prepaid amount and, and you get a discount based on that. Step number six, do you have Azure virtual machines where you're collecting logs, but from multiple regions? Because the data egress cost could be a major concern. The problem here is that once you have plenty of VMs, uh, by default, you typically want to extract everything from them. And if, it, if it's a chatty VM, a Linux or a Windows box, you get a lot of logs. And if that travels between regions, you end up paying for that egress cost. And that could be a major concern. And the thinking here on step six is that if those VMs are in multiple regions, you have to think what the cost is going to be. And if the cost is going to be too high, then you can again go for the separate Sentinel workspaces. But there, there you have a footnote, note number five, that says, well, it's not a best practice 
to have a lot of different workspaces. So you, so, so you have to balance between cost and convenience. And we have two more steps. So step number seven, what's that? Step number seven is really about segregating segregating data. That's a tough word. So yeah. segregating data or defining boundaries by ownership. If you do not need to segregate data uh, or define any ownership boundaries, then you just continue to the next step. But if you do need to segregate some data or define boundaries based on ownership of that data, does each data owner then need to use the Microsoft Sentinel portal if they uh, must use a portal uh, you use a separate Microsoft Sentinel workspace for each owner. But if access to the logs via log analytics is sufficient for any owners without access to the actual Microsoft Sentinel portal, you can also just continue to step number eight. So there are some considerations around that. If they do need to go through the Sentinel portal for that data and you need data se segregation, then you should create a, a separate Microsoft Sentinel workspace for each owner. And then you know access to the Sentinel portal requires that each user have a role that at least Microsoft Sentinel Reader, which has a reader permission on all tables in the workspace. And that's kind of why we asked this question. So if a user does not have access to all the tables in the workspace, they'll need to use log analytics to access the logs. But if they want to use the uh, Microsoft Sentinel portal in the Azure portal and see like the actual user experience of Microsoft Sentinel, then you have to take this into account that they will have read on all the tables. So coming back to the question, do you need to segregate data or define boundaries by ownership? If not, if if you have two different divisions, for example, and they need access to the logs, do, is it okay that they see each other's data or do you need to define that boundary? If you do that uh, and they need access to the data through the Microsoft Sentinel portal, you se separate the workspaces. If not, you have a single workspace. So again, there's a lot of considerations based on how you operate and how your business works. Coming back to what you said before, you see that it's not very technical decision-making going on here. It's more about understanding your business. Uh, what is my legal position? What is the regulatory compliance we have to abide by? And, and is that different by our different teams and divisions and, and orgs spread throughout the globe? And really understanding who should have access to what type of data? Uh, how do I handle cost management? How do I handle the billing and chargeback like we talked about and like if you have multiple tenants like there's a bunch of things here to consider and and each of the things we're just kind of scraping the surface as you dive into each of those steps there's going to be be a lot more but there's one more step uh step number eight what's that yeah the last one do you need to control access meaning that yes obviously you might have a contributor to access microsoft sentinel but do you need to have more fine-grained control on what data sources and tables your admins are going to be allowed to see. If you choose no for this, do you need control? No, then you use a single Microsoft Sentinel workspace. That's it. That's the end of the, uh, the decision tree. But if you need to control, then it gets a little bit messier and you have sort of have to travel through the sub decisions on this and there's quite a bit of notes attached on when do you use a single environment when do you need to have some sort of a different setup so on paper meaning that when you view the decision tree graphic on a browser you might casually just glimpse that and say oh okay this this seems clear but when you start reading the notes and the further description on the steps there's quite a bit of stuff in here Definitely. 
do have a look on this one. And whenever you're setting up a new Sentinel instance, use this to arrive at the correct decision on what sort of an architecture you're going to need for your Sentinel. Anything to add? No, I, I, I have a lot of things to add. <laughs> uh, based on this and, and based on how I've worked with Sentinel and log analytics. But I think this covers what we wanted to do with this episode, take a high level peek at the decisions to kind of just bring awareness to the organizational awareness you need to have when setting this up. So again, if you're five users or 50 users and you have a small service, you can just set up a workspace and then you can kind of change as you go. If you're an enterprise or a larger company where you have multiple things up and running already and you have a lot of more uh, requirements on you, yeah, make sure that you sit down and do this exercise first before you start just implementing things randomly. If you do that, you're going to save a lot of time down the road. One thing that I'm missing from all of, all of the content here in the decision tree, at the beginning of the decision tree article, there's a link to sample workspace design. And there's quite a bit of those designs. So I was hoping that when you travel through those eight steps, and if you arrive at a choice, oh, I need multiple workspaces for geographical reasons, for example, would it be nice to have a link from there exactly to the correct sample design telling this is what you're going to build now. But now you have to travel there and start reading another document to understand, so which one did I need to go again? So perhaps that's something that I could edit and send a pull request to Microsoft and hope somebody do would it. accept that. <laughs> do <laughs> <it>. will do. <laughs> Alrighty, we have the last bit, the unexpected question. And Toby, it's my turn to ask you the question. Are you ready? Yeah. All right. Let's go. What movie completely changes its plot when you change one letter in its title? And what's the new movie about? <laughs> Okay, so I've I've done that exercise when I was a kid, and and a couple of times throughout life I've considered this a very important question. So I I have a few that I can come mm -hmm. to think about. One is Beauty and the Beast. If you change one letter, it becomes Beauty and the Yeast. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's about baking. I don't know. You have Apocalypse Now. If you change one letter, it becomes Apocalypse Cow. And that's about a cow that brought down the world. Uh, and you have Harry Potter. What about Harry Potter? So he he's just growing like Chewbacca, like a guy named Potter, uh, Harry like Chewbacca. I don't know. Uh, you have Robocop, Robocop. And I remember a friend in school many, many years, like two decades ago or so, maybe, maybe, more, maybe more than that, two and a half decades ago. He called Robocop Hobocop. For, for some reason. I can't remember the story there. Top Gun would be Top Nun. Uh, Silence of the Lambs would be Silence of the Lamps. But I'm not sure how that would change anything because lamps are inherently pretty quiet. And the final one I can think of top of mind is uh, Mad Max, which is a movie probably everyone knows about, either from the originals or the reincarnated movies. Um, Sad Max which is perhaps a, a good reflection. It doesn't actually change anything in that story, I think, because Mad Max is Sad Max as well. So Yeah, definitely. Yeah, at, at, at least the uh, the old ones, uh, the Mad Max 1 and 2, I recall. 
are really good ones, really good ones. I, I hadn't heard most of these at all. Perhaps the reason is that a lot of the times back in the day when the movies were imported to Finland, they would translate the names of those movies and then you didn't really think through on the original name at all. Oh yeah. Oh. Yeah. We have that in, in Sweden sometimes. Most of the times we keep the original, but I I've seen some strange stuff where where they really like Robocop, I think is Robocop, but it could have been uh, the robotic policeman. Yeah. You know, they, exactly. they make really strange translations sometimes. All righty. Thank you for tuning in again. See you next week. All right. See you then. 